Welcome to Africa Design. Yes, welcome. Thank you for joining us. So carrying on our creative tour of Africa. On this episode, we are joined by Fungi Dube, an incredible designer and researcher. With a background in science who shares her project Threads. She also shares more about African script and their cultural, socioeconomic and political significance. We're trying out a slightly new format for the show this time, a more focused version. Let us know what you think about it. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm Adrian Yankovyak. And I'm Naitiemu. And this is Africa Design. How do we pronounce your name? Because we've seen it and heard it pronounced in many different ways. For me, I said Fungi Dube. That sounds that's a bit it. more Swahili, I think. I just took it the way it looks. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Does it have a meaning? Yeah, so my full name is actually Fungai. So that means to think in Shona, which is one of my native tongues. My surname, Dube, is Isindubele. So that's a direct translation, which means a zebra. I am named after my grandmother, who was the original Fungai Dube, and absolutely amazing super strong gracious woman who was really big on unifying you know people and family so i come from a very close-knit family so that is who i embody and if names are supposed to foreshadow things you said it's zebra right so perhaps around the work you do with patterns and your understanding of nature yeah, maybe, because I hadn't actually thought about it that way. So I think that's a super cool interpretation. I'm sticking with that. I'm going to run with that because I think that's super cool. So Fungi comes from a background of anatomy, physiology and biochemistry. She told us how she got from this into design and what it adds to her work. Yeah, so it's a pretty interesting pivot, right? Because I think everyone's always like super shocked when they find out that I was actually like a science major. And they're like, what, you're designing now? Like, how does that even work? So... I mean, I always had like creative inclinations from when I was young. So I was that child was like DIYing things. So I definitely feel that me being a designer right now is sort of like a full circle moment where everything has been leading up to this exact moment. And what I've noticed is that what sort of maybe differentiates my process is that I'm able to implement some of like these scientific methodologies in my work. So everything is heavily influenced by research because I want to be able to elevate the African narrative, but I don't want to misconstrue it. I believe it has to be portrayed in its fullest grace, like with so much reverence, but it has to be like spot on and so accurate because you don't want to have you know, like different interpretations of things that you think are, but actually aren't. My scientific background comes into play because there's like, you know, some analysis, some evaluation, loads of research. So I open up books, I search articles, I'm reading like 40 page papers that have been written because I just want to be able to find out if, you know, what is on the internet is accurate and that sort of thing, because I can only do so much being here in Harare in Zimbabwe. I would love to absolutely meet all of these people and like, you know, go to all these different parts in Africa and hear firsthand from elders in the communities, but it's physically impossible. So what I have is the internet, but I need to make sure that I can sort of, you know, like collate all the resources I can to make sure that even as I then translate that into design, it's something that is sound, it's something that has been tested, it's something that 
someone notable or someone who's taken time out to do the research, right, has also concluded on so that at least the narrative is, is maintained and it's strong and it's sound. What does the history of fabrics tell us about those fabrics, about the people who, who developed them and the cultures that they came from? I own like so much and car and all of that in various forms. And I think that's super cool. But as I was like digging into it, you actually realize that, you know, elements or that represented much bigger stories. So when it came to even expressing, you know, issues around political and social reform, around advancements and in, in agriculture, around, you know, just like the basics of life. So life issues like motherhood, love, spite, just all of those emotional roller coasters that we go through as people nowadays, as opposed to maybe having a platform whereby you, we can now like tweet about it or you can write a think piece about it. I realized that textiles were a bigger way of communicating some of these issues. So for instance, even if we look into Kenyan culture and we look at kente which is probably the most celebrated African textile that is known world over historically when we look at that we see that it was the cloth of royals and there's a whole like story around that that I read up to say that you know there were these two uh, young men who were in the forest and then they encountered a spider who was weaving his web and they were so fascinated about it and then he taught them how to do this and then they took it back to the Asante Hini at the time and he was super fascinated by the entire process and then it turned it into a royal cloth but also what you then discover right because we're talking about tradition and culture and the richness of the stories behind this is that no two kente were the same and all the weave patterns had different positions and all the positions had different meanings so you could have a particular kente cloth that was worn for a specific event or one that was representative of war times or one that was representative of some break in in, in social reform or something like that so it ceases to just be something that's aesthetic and then it becomes more for in like deeper messaging and like you know still with that beauty because we can't take away from the aesthetic value of these things but the traditional and cultural norms and the stories that are embedded in that run so much deeper and this is way back into 18th century even when you look at kuba cloths from the drc um, that dates way back as well into like the 18th century and apparently according to history and papers right like all of these cloths like inspired some really world-renowned artists who hung these cloths in their studios so like picasso and they just stared at the geometry of of the fabrics right waiting for inspiration for their artwork and i'm mind blown like are you telling me that this always existed in africa and we're not like on this like that's so cool there's so much history that's embedded into them there's so much culture that's embedded into them and there's so much beauty that is embedded into them she then told us what's changed with the materials and processes used over time there was sort of like a moment where people realized that, hey, we can actually start making money from this. So there's mass production, which means that it's basically just printing, you know, various designs, I guess we could call them nowadays, as opposed to actual patterns that may have a meaning. It's more aesthetic more than anything. But when we look at it from then, right, from 
that from when this initially started and from when Africans in Africa started exploring these textiles, there was, like we've been talking about, there was a lot of messaging, but also even how they were made was different. So when we look at Kuba cloth now, which is generally printed or maybe hand sewn, they were using these like raffia fibers, right, that they would interlock to create those geometric patterns. So you had the women within those communities being the ones who are actually interpreting and the ones who are actually denoting and adding meaning to these symbols because that was the role of the women. And most of them were actually weaved by the women. And then they would pass on these practices and the actual custom of making them to their daughters who were then expected to pass that on to their daughters. And it kept going like that. I like to call it more of like a sacred sort of spiritual process where it just wasn't like, oh, like, let's just see what we can come up with. Oh, that flower's pretty. Let's print it on 10,000 pieces of Dutch wax fabric and just sell it out there to the world. It was very intentional. It was not random at all. Even when you look at Kente, those were individual threads woven on a loom. Right, with all the different colors representing different states. So the yellows or the golds, we could say, representing royalty and luxury. And then you had the greens and the blues, which represented fertility and you know innovation and that sort of thing. So everything was so well thought out, right? And it was so precise. And the way of making them was very, very, very specific, which is very different to what it is now because now it's just mass commercialization. How much can we get out there in bulk? Because people want this and we need to sell it. African fabrics and patterns have often been commercialized. Fungi gave us the example of Bogolan cloth being used by interior designers across the world on pillows and covers. And it's not even in an African context alone, because even this happens in Asia, it happens in other parts of the world, where you may get a certain conglomerate or people with the financial muscle or these big brands who will come and take these ideas from these different communities and make a major killing off of it and profit off of it. So my stance is to say there's nothing wrong with commercializing them. I think it shows impact, right, that on a global scale, people have actually seen that this thing, these textiles have so much influence and they shape narratives. But at the same time, if we decide that we're going to be making money off of this, let the actual holders of the narrative benefit the most because they're the ones who have the the, the storage of those stories at heart and they're the ones who've lived them and they're the ones who came up with them. We touched more on appropriation of culture. As an artist, I'm highly inspired by the many different cultures, communities in Africa and how then can I best interpret this in my work without infringing other people's methods and ideas and cultures? Yeah, that is such a valid question, right? Because then people will be like, hey, as Africans, if we're having this conversation together, for instance, if I am to borrow from your culture, am I appropriating or am I appreciating you? So there's a super fine line. So I think my position has always been to say that I generally believe in an Africa that is borderless. But I believe that we're one people because how is it that I can talk about my experience here in Zimbabwe and have the same conversation with my friend in Nairobi or in Nigeria or in Ghana? I'm like, oh, that's exactly how I grew up. My mom also used to do that. And my mom said that. So it's all of these like common experiences that we have. So when it then comes to drawing inspiration from my neighbors or from my friends, I would like to say, 
I think it's the one making sure that obviously you're not misconstruing the narrative. So if you do have someone that you can reach out to who is there to say, hey, I just wanted to fact check with you. Like I have this project that I'm working on and I saw these symbols and that sort of thing. Do you know about it? What can you tell me? This is how I'm trying to translate it so that, you know, it still makes sense in your context as well, but it allows me to be able to celebrate your culture. And one of my favorite proverbs actually says that if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. I I believe that's exactly how it should be. Fungi shared more about Threads, a series she started as a means of understanding the graphic systems that are embedded in African textiles. So one of my dear friends sent me the fabric map of Africa. It was done by Mia Cora. And I was like, whoa, this is so fascinating because I think we've always known that textiles exist. But because I've also generally had a fascination with the, the geometry in African patterns, so even on housing, right? So in homesteads and that sort of thing, I know it's a thing in Ghana, it's a thing here in Zimbabwe, it's a thing in South Africa, where you'll see all of the beautiful patterns on mud huts and that sort of thing. I started my Google search and then I started off by searching mud cloth. We see a lot of pictographic symbols here where it's actually a form of writing where these symbols depict objects. Say a denker is well known, then they also put it on fabric, but then that's more ideographic symbols where an entire symbol represents a concept, like a whole idea in one. And I just got super, super intrigued. And I was like, okay, what about the colors? What happens with that? Do they mean something? Is it just random? Like, what's going on with that? So I started digging deeper and deeper. What actually led for threads to grow in my mind, and hopefully in the minds of people who have encountered it, is that I then got the opportunity where uh, typographics reached out to me. They're like, I would like for you to be a speaker this year. And I was racking my brain because I was like, I'm not a type designer. What am I supposed to talk about, right? And then so I was consulting with one of my other dear friends, Simon Chawi. And I was like, Simon, I'm completely lost here because I really want to do this. And I think it's amazing. But everyone who goes to typographics is talking about type design. And I'm just here like... Fungi, what font have you designed? (laughs) Nothing. So that's when you started just like picking my brain and we eventually landed on this because I was saying in my mind was still a very loose concept, but that actually solidified it to say, wait, African script actually different, right? Because we can get letter form. So we're going to get our A's, our B's, our C's and that sort of thing. But what's the equivalent of that in Africa? So all of these symbols that we see, right? All of these rock paintings from like hunter era and that sort of thing, they were a means of communicating something. When they saw these things within their communities, they actually knew what it meant because that was their form of encoding and transferring and storing information. That's what really pushed me to keep pursuing threads because this exploration started very loosely in March and then it ended towards the end of June slash into July and yeah I just realized that the African scripts are super versatile and they take different forms but they are still so rich in meaning but that's how Dreads was born that's how it evolved it hasn't ended yet because I'm still very curious (laughs) and I feel like there's more and more to explore. Fungi mentioned that African scripts are not ordinary they are phonetic, syllabic, ideographic and pictographic characters and symbols And we wanted to learn some examples. 
The pictographic ones for sure. When you look at mud cloth, right? So Bogalan cloth from Mali. You see that you actually have abstract symbols that represent an entire object. So they will have a little like upwards arrows that are representative of a, a farmer's sickle. You'll also get wave patterns that represent rivers. And you'll also get other upward arrow symbols that represent mountains or valleys. That's what actually like really blows my mind because it, then you start to see that everything was super well thought out. And it may look very, very raw, but that was how they understood these things and how they saw them. The best example of ideographic will be adinkra. You get several adinkra symbols. You get all of these that represent female beauty. You get other symbols that represent the twists and turns of life. But it's all depicted within one, you know, like symbol. But it's an entire concept. It's a whole sentence from start to finish with the full stop. Your phonetic scripts, I guess, would be then sort of with the different languages that you hear. Like I said, I speak Shona. I also speak Ndebele. But our vowel system would be A, A, E, O, U. So A, E, I, O, U. And that's exactly how we then pronounce and sound our words. So when you see Fungi or Fungai, it's exactly how you read it, how you see it is how you say it. These characters are then coming together to form the sound of my language and the sound of the languages that you speak. Syllabic would just be, you know, these characters that then come together to form the syllables, that form the words, then that form the sentences. When we look at textiles, we're mostly looking at the ideographic and most probably the pictographic forms of scripts as opposed to the phonetic ones because we're not really sounding out languages or anything like that. But it's more symbolic than anything. Have you got any examples, just a side note, maybe in your language of onomatopoeia, the words that sound like the thing that they're doing? Yeah, oh gosh, I'm trying to think. Hmm. So another one in Swahili is kuku, which is chicken. Okay, okay, so that's actually interesting, right? Because then you also see like you know, the migration of Bantu languages and everything like that, because in Shona, a chicken is huku. So, yeah, we do have this thing called Nyaozo Singui, where you actually associate a sound to an action. So if someone were to fall down, like you hear that sort of thud sound, but in Shona you would say D, because that represents that thud, right? Or if someone is quiet or someone is silent, it's like Z, like quiet. In Swahili, we have a whole category of sound. For example, if someone is laughing, you say cheka kwa kwa kwa. And then there's like nyamaza ndi. Like <laughs> each and everything. Nyamaza is like yeah. silent. silent. Yeah. Each and every action has a sound connected to it. We also study the, the examples that I was giving you, we also study in Devon School. Even as you write compositions, you would then be incorporating those words to describe the sounds, like this person fell. So it'll be Akadona Kuti Di, you know, like <laughs> they fell and you heard that sound. Let's hope that uh, kids are learning uh, about African patterns in schools all over the world. And that's yeah. yeah, I think there's definitely need for the curriculum to change. 
I was having this conversation, I think it's actually on the day of the typographics conference because I got a few DMs and, you know, just general comments saying, wait, how come like we didn't learn about these things in school? Because some of my colleagues were presenting on different things and one of them, Tapio Anashe, Sebastian Garikai, is an amazing type designer. He's trying to revive African languages through designing fonts for them. But it's different in his context because as opposed to the Latin alphabet, where you have all of these software that have been designed for it, he has to go around the corners to try fit and manipulate these African fonts within those systems because African languages sound very different. The general commentary was to say, why are we not being taught this in school? And then I started thinking about that as well. And I was like, a lot of what we get taught, unfortunately, is due to the fact that as Africans, we were colonized and that's a big deal. In our history books, I know way more about the Cold War and World War One, and, you know, all of those things that I do about my actual history. If you had asked me, I'd probably be like, oh, yeah, it's like a sprinkle. I know that this happened at this time and that happened in that time. But now because there's this massive shift and there's a need to be able to decolonize these systems inclusive of our design systems. We then realize that there's need to shift the curriculum because we need to be learning about these things. We need to learn about who you are. We need to learn about our identity. We need to know where we came from. We need to know what we're good at. We need to know what our things mean, how to make a good living from our narratives and from owning that. It's an entire process. It's not an overnight thing, but I think it starts with just one person changing their perspective and not to even say it in a disrespectful way or anything but I think just being able to confidently and proudly own who you are as an African and then taking that out to the world because as much as we consume media and information and culture from the West we should also be able to do that for ourselves with what we actually have here in the motherland. That's that's very true I remember watching this TED talk by Chimamanda Ngozi Mm -hmm. and she touched on how when she was growing up the books that she read were all foreign and so Mm -hmm. being a writer and a creative she was made to believe that you have to go foreign for you to be able to express yourself right everything that's within the books are foreign and that's basically much of how we've grown up with to have storybooks in the library that are not relatable and so you grow up thinking that for you to actually get into this other world you must find other foreign things which mm-hmm. and now growing up you start seeing all these amazing things from Africa and you're like what how did I miss all this so I yeah, feel exactly. it's really important what you're doing and it's very important for us to understand our roots yeah definitely yeah. it's like almost like an eye-opener right and somehow it hits you late in life which is actually so crazy Because when I look at my childhood and everything like that, it was actually quite bad to the point that when I went to school, so I went to government school for for grade school, so grade one to seven, and then for high school, I went to a private institution. And it was interesting in the sense that we would get in trouble at break time for speaking to your friend in your native language. So you would have to go and see the headmistress because I was speaking in Shona to my friend during break time. We've actually grown up in a space where a lot of who we are and a lot of the culture that we embody has been suppressed at 
all angles and you almost feel ashamed to step into it or feel ashamed to express yourself in your native tongue because then what are people going to say we actually had the slang term growing up called gouache so saying like oh you're so gouache if, if you don't know how to speak english like you're not cool Right, but I'm like, no, that shouldn't be a thing because I should still be cool and speaking in Shona. I should still be cool and speaking in Swahili. I should still be cool and speaking in Dewele, and that should be okay. I can still be cool speaking in English, but allow me to express who I am and to be who I am, and don't suppress that and don't demonize me for stepping into that because that is who I am. And as a, by the way, there's a few pieces of perhaps Africa being mentioned in the. Curriculum that I grew up on, and、mm-hmm. one of those was Egypt, and that's probably one of the most interesting things to most students.、Mm-hmm. People seem to find Egyptian history very fascinating, and that would probably extend to all, all this other stuff that you're teaching and patterns and symbols, etc. So it's actually also interesting and、yeah. can give people an insight into their own cultures as well. Yeah, exactly. This is really interesting because you've touched on what we wanted to ask as well, which is the timeline of some of the the prints and the symbols and so on. You've mentioned that some, you know, a lot of this culture goes back to way before colonization,、mm-hmm. and some of it might even come after colonization. So, what have you learned about the timeline of these prints, and maybe even where did they originally come from? How were they originally made? Where they actually originated from? I think it was also、uh, a matter of the environment. More specifically, was Kuba cloths, which is probably the oldest recorded. They used to make that out of raffia fibers, which is like a, a raw natural fiber. That they turned into a thread, and then they were interlocking that. So it's actually referred to as like the eco-friendly fabric of Africa because it was all natural. I think it was a matter of seeing what was within their environment and what they could use to actually make these textiles, and then the actual work that went into it. So the geometric patterns or whatever form the patterns took was an interpretation of their culture and their stories. So, like I'm saying, things that they saw. And directly translated onto the fabric, whether it was a cow, how would we represent a cow, and how can you put that on fabric? Whether it was a tree, what does a tree look like? With all these reforms, agriculture, a sickle, so that would be some form of farming, right? So you've got that cylindrical shape or whatever it is. But also to answer your other question, where you said there's、uh, pre. Colonization, the post-colonization, the other things that are coming up now, what's happening with that? I think just like myself, and probably like yourself as an artist, right? It's now then just drawing into those cultures and seeing how we can bring that into 2021. It's seeing how we can collaborate with other people to sort of see how we can come up with innovative and fresh ways of depicting these ideas that have always existed. Because what was there in 18 Something, something, right, <laughs> may not be as relevant in 2021. 
in terms of how people actually perceive the information but the actual messaging behind it remains. So I think that's probably the shift now to say, you then see a lot of artists, you see a lot of illustrators, you see a lot of type designers, uh, you see a lot of textile designers who are sort of going back. So that's Sankofa, right? Which is also another ridiculous symbol where you go back into the past, you get the knowledge of the past and you bring it into the present, which is an entire concept in itself. We also got to explore some of the different fabrics that were used in the past. Raffia is mud cloth and it's actually made out of a fermented mud. That's why it's called mud cloth. As to the technique behind that, I think that there would actually be need for more research as to how they did it because I think that's absolutely fascinating. And then you then get your kuba cloth, which was made out of raffia fibers. Your kente was made out of single threads, so those were woven on a loom. I think with time, like I was saying, it's just turned into more hand print, but a dinkra is hand printed using calabash stamps onto fabric. So they would actually make the stamps, right, with the different symbol on the top there, and then they're dipping that into an ink and stamping it onto fabric. In terms of materials, I think that is as far as I can confidently answer you because that's the research that I've done. But that's why I also mentioned threads may be done on behats, but it's not done in actual life because there's just so much more to unpack. And I'm extremely curious about this and will keep digging up until I learn everything. And the ink? Not entirely sure because that's also part of research. But I would like to believe that it was probably, you know, like I almost picture henna for some, for some odd reason where it may be had been like a natural dye from a tree or something like that. There's probably a lot of undiscovered knowledge there. Research that should be done by scientists looking into the breakdown mm -hmm. of some of these pigments. So are there other stories that you'd love to unpack on the show for our listeners? Or that you're looking forward to unpacking. Definitely, definitely. But I'm not going to tell you because I think that you need to be surprised when you find out what they are. But yeah, my mind is always ticking. Um, so as soon as, I think as we're drawing towards typographics, I was already thinking of what the next exploration is going to be. So I have folders with papers in there and I'm reading. And when it comes out, you all know about it. <laughs> And that's all I'm going to say. You took part in typographics this year. You took part with other designers that you've, you've already kind of mentioned a few of them. Who are the other designers? Oh, awesome. So there's Tapio Sebastian Garikai. So at Seb Gary Design on Instagram. S-E-B-G-A-R-R-Y Design on Instagram. Amazing, amazing, amazing type designer who is absolutely shifting He's going out and he's reviving African languages through type. So we speak of Manguengo script and and all of that. And it's it's mind-blowing work. I think that if you can actually have him on, on this session, you should definitely pick into his brain and hear the work that he's been doing because it's phenomenal. The other designer that we had on as well is Taurai Valerim Take. She's at Tava Take Designs, T-A-V-A-T-A-K-E Designs on Instagram. And she was talking about Madimi, which is a Bantu-inspired typeface and writing system that she evolved. And that's also super, super fascinating work. Yeah, so it was it was the three of us uh, being moderated by Simon Chawi, 
so African Design Matters on Instagram or Simon Chawi. He was our moderator and then the three of us were the ones who were presenting. But yeah, you should you should tap into their work. Like shameless plug. I'm just gonna keep raving about them because I think that they're doing amazing work. Thank you so much. Thank you. So Please tell us and the listeners, where can everyone find you? Where should they keep updated on your newest exciting project? So you can find me on Instagram, Fungi Dube Graphics, F-U-N-G-I-D-U-B-E. You can also find me on Twitter at Fungi underscore Dube. You can find me on LinkedIn if you want to keep it professional, Fungi Dube. <laughs> And you can find me on Behance as well. My DMs across all my social media platforms are always open because I'm always open to having different kinds of conversations around design and Africa and my dislike for cats. If you are one of those people as well, then we can always have a chat about that too. But yeah, all sorts of things happen in my DMs. So you're always welcome to reach out to me and we can we can have a chat for sure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed it and you can check out all the episodes by searching Africa Design, Africa with a K on your favorite podcast player or heading to africa.design. On the next episode, we'll have Mutana Gakuru sharing with us his project Sounds of Freedom. An audio experience that challenges us to go back in time and try to understand what freedom fighters used to go through.